Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to talk about reforming police departments, also known as defunding the police. Our guest is Alex Vitale, and he's been at the forefront of this movement for a while. His book called The End of Policing has become a favorite of activists nationwide who want reforms. Alex is now a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College in New York, but he says he learned many of his formative ideas about the police when he worked at the Coalition for Homelessness in San Francisco nearly 30 years ago. And now, here's my conversation with Alex Vitale. Alex Vitale, uh, from your home in Brooklyn to my home in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. Thanks, Joe. Now, you wrote your, your book, The End of Policing, three years ago, but it's really finding an audience right now in this moment that we're in. Uh, and, and, uh, as you write, and as, as long as the, the, you say the police are being asked to do too much. And as long as, as you writing, and as long as the police are tasked with waging simultaneous wars on drugs, crime, disorder, and terrorism, we will have aggressive and invasive policing that disproportionately criminalizes the young, poor, male, and non-white. B- before we talk about the, 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 the book, which is excellent, um, I want to talk to you about your experience here in San Francisco, uh, early nineties, uh, thereabouts. You worked for the coalition on homelessness in San Francisco at a time when city leaders here were taking a very aggressive stance against the homeless folks. Uh, they were ticketing them, they were, they were jailing them. Um, and I want to see, you know, how that experience shaped your reviews on policing. Well, really it was, it was fundamental because I didn't start off thinking I was going to be working on policing and civil rights issues. I had studied, you know, uh, urban economic development, housing policy, stuff like that. And I, I went to work at the homeless coalition in 90, uh, for Paul Bowden then, and, uh, to do housing policy. And that's, that's what I was doing when, uh, we began to get, you know, a lot of reports from folks that we were working with that they were experiencing, you know, a drastically higher level of police harassment. And, uh, you know, my boss asked me to look into that. And in doing that, talking to people, working with uh, civil rights attorneys like John Crew, who was at the ACLU then, um, what it, what became clear was that the city had really given up on the possibility of actually housing people. This was like after the 89 earthquake, after that first wave of trying to figure it out. They had basically given up and had just turned the problem over to the police to manage. And that lesson really has stuck with me ever since, that when we see a problem turned over to the police to manage, we should look behind that for the political failure that it's enabling. And so that, and that shaped that theme runs throughout the the book. And, um, when you hear the term defund the police, what does that mean to you? So, you know, there's been a movement percolating and the book, obviously it's crazy attention right now, but the book has been doing actually very well ever since it came out. And I've been traveling to dozens of cities every year working with groups that were trying to push back against spending for jails, spending for police, spending for you know a youth lockup facility, and to get those funds redirected into community-identified public safety initiatives. 
And that's really, so defund the police became a kind of shorthand for that movement. It was something that would fit on a cardboard poster. It was something that you could put in a hashtag, but it never fully captured this idea of shifting resources very concretely, uh, which is really what's at the root of this movement. When you, I think a lot of people, and let's let's be real here, it's it's uh, we should say white people when they hear that term, they get freaked out. You you hear this all the time. They think when they if they call nine one one, nobody's going to respond. What do you say to them when you're trying to explain uh, the the role of of reprioritizing uh, what the police should be doing? Even folks who would like to live in a world where there are no police understand that there's no magic switch where tomorrow we just flip it and there are no police. There's there's no city council in the country that's going to zero out the police budget this year. You know, that is a kind of fantasy world that people live in that they imagine that these movements are somehow going to make all police disappear tomorrow. This is a public safety movement led by people who have experienced violence and victimization, and for whom the police have not been the solution to their problems. In fact, the police have often been an additional burden for them. And what they're demanding is not less safety for people, what they're demanding is more safety for people. But that we do it in ways that are preventative, where we use early interventions, and where we try to build people up instead of victimizing, punishing, incarcerating them. And we, we, intrinsic to this conversation is race. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, as you write in the book, that sometimes liberals even ignore. You write the, the, quote, the reality is that the police exist primarily as a system for managing and even producing inequality by suppressing social movements and tightly managing the behaviors of poor and non-white people those on the losing end of po- economic and political arrangements. What what do liberals need to understand about uh, defunding the police uh, the and and the and changing the way we police? Well, I think there's this kind of liberal myth that what the police do is that they are the neutral enforcers of a set of laws that automatically benefit everyone equally. That, that the rule of law, when properly implemented, is an automatic plus for everyone. And this just isn't true. The, the law, first of all, the police don't just enforce the law. They enforce a notion of order, which sometimes has nothing to do with what's on the law books. Very little of the time of police officers is spent enforcing the law in any technical sense. What they spend their time doing is managing the consequences of an economic and political system that's produced things like mass homelessness, mass untreated mental illness, mass untreated substance abuse problems, mass economic precarity that has driven people into black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen property. And rather than solving any of those problems, Policing exists to allow the system that produces those problems to keep chugging right along. And this is regardless of the intent or understanding of individual police officers, because they're told 
Get those disorderly homeless people off that corner. Get those kids out of that park because people are complaining. Without interrogating, well, why do we have so many homeless people? Why do kids have nothing better to do? Right? And those are a symptom of larger political problems. Well, let's keep going on that because you know the the homeless situation here uh, firsthand from your work uh, many years ago. It, as you know, it's grown exponentially since then, uh, all over San Francisco, Oakland, the Bay Area, the suburbs. Uh, it's 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 uh, the challenges are everywhere. So, what would an alternative look like to having the police involved and and rousing tet camps and and tossing the homeless in jail and 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 and, and and things you've described. What would uh, what would a, a an alternative scenario look like? And look, this is a national problem. This is not unique to the Bay Area, right? Oh, yes, I mean, yes. that's one of the things traveling around the country is you just see it is now everywhere. Ev- small towns, rural areas, everywhere. So, what does this look like? There are short-term interventions and there are long-term interventions. So, first we need to look at some mitigation strategies. These are efforts to help address some of the kind of quality of life concerns that people have. That's about creating 24-hour drop-in facilities equipped with showers, mail drops for people, places where people can get out of the elements without being forced into these behavioral regimes. Oh, you you can't come in with a, a, a partner. You, you have to be completely clean and sober. You, you have to fill out this paperwork. You have to agree to be in this program, right? We create all these barriers, and then we wonder why people don't go into these facilities because the facilities are actually hostile to them. So we need to remove those barriers. We need to create safe places for people to be. We need to make sure they have adequate food and nutrition while we work on actually housing them. And what's clear is that, you know, no one ever thought that the city of San Francisco on its own could solve what is a a regional and national homelessness problem. So there is an obligation for the state of California and the federal government to do something about this. But the city of San Francisco has often made the problem worse, not better by subsidizing market rate conversions of hotels and SROs, by embracing you know, real estate deals that have created an affordability crisis for people. So the city of San Francisco could do more on the housing front while they work on the long-term strategies and put in place better mitigation me- me- mechanisms. And what's the role of the citizen? Here, uh, I'll give you an example. In my neighborhood in Oakland, you know, it's a, it's a decent neighborhood, but we there's homeless folks who are camped out nearby. Uh, I think the inclination, without <laughs> throwing some of my neighbors under the bus, is that you know they they see someone the you know walking around, they they call nine one one. What should those neighbors do instead of that? You know, we, we, so many people are experiencing this financial crunch with, with rising property expenses. And so there's a lot of pressure to maintain those property values by getting rid of unsightly homeless people. 
but also people see people in distress legitimately. So in Eugene, Oregon, and in a handful of other places around the country, they have put in place outreach work capacity, 24-hour crisis response that can deal with someone having a mental health crisis, a substance abuse crisis that's not police-related. These are trained. This is the CAHOOTS program. This is correct? like the CAHOOTS program in Eugene. There are now uh, proposals to do similar things in Albuquerque, Los Angeles, here in New York, so uh, Minneapolis. So we need to quit using police to manage those calls. We need to create this alternative outreach capacity. And in the meantime, also, people need to think twice about whether or not a call to 911 is actually going to help the person that they're calling for. They need to think, if they do call 911, how do they frame the issue so that maybe they get an EMT response rather than a police response? Because even police who don't end up you know, violently victimizing someone don't really have any tools or resources to help that person in any meaningful way. So we need to get them out of the equation in as many ways as we possibly can. We will have more of my conversation about defunding the police after this short break. You write in the book that about, you know, so often uh, reformers talk about, oh, retraining, uh, you know, if we, if we only retrain police better. And you know, let's look at the case of Eric Garner, who was, uh, several years ago was killed by New York police. And it was very similar to George Floyd's death. It was on the street, broad daylight, captured on video uh, for a low-level crime uh, or alleged crime. He was selling cigarettes on the street. Afterwards, New York City's mayor and the police chief put in place all these new use of force trainings. But as you, as you write, this misses the point. The, um, it, it said for... Um, uh, the, the, it's you see right. This is a problem of values and seems to go to the heart of the claim that for too many police, black lives don't matter. The second is a quote broken windows style policing, which targets low level infractions for intensive, invasive, and aggressive enforcement. So what what's the role of training here? Do we is that is that part of the equation, or does the training that we're giving police or retraining uh, need to be updated? So I wish we could fix this with training, but I just don't think we can. I mean, I've been a, a police scholar for a couple of decades now, and, and I just don't see the evidence that this training makes a meaningful difference. The, the officers in Minneapolis who were there, you know, who killed and watched the killing of George Floyd had had de-escalation training. We're in a city where chokeholds weren't supposed to be used had had mindfulness training, had had an implicit bias training, had been instructed that they had a duty to both preserve life and to intervene if they saw police misconduct. They had all the training <laughs> that we can think of, and, and it just made no difference. The, the police are violence workers who have been told to wage these wars on poor people. And in until we get them out of the business of doing a lot of what they do, there's going to be violence and people are going to die needlessly. And so we need to look at why we're sending them for so many things and what could we be doing to mitigate 
or eliminate those problems in a preventative way in the first place. Uh, and often we hear, and we're, we're hearing it now, uh, about um, uh, cities wanting to invest more in, quote, community policing. And uh, you know, in a, in a nutshell, instead of having uh, officers cruise around in the city in cars, uh, you, you have them interacting more with local folks, getting to know people in the community, growing up with young people. Uh, you're not uh, such a big fan of this. Um, right, that uh, it doesn't help communities, quote, in meaningful ways. It expands police power, but does nothing to reduce the burden of over-policing on people of color and the poor. Uh, it's also known that, uh, colloquially as copaganda, like propaganda. You know, oh, we have uh, officer friendly in the neighborhood. But what, why did this, you know, this has been uh, touted for many years as, as a solution. Why do you, what, uh, what, what's the downside of community policing? Yeah, well, community policing always emerges as a response to a crisis in legitimacy for policing. This is always what is rolled out as the strategy for fixing whatever problem it is that the police have engaged in. After the you know, riots of the 60s, we begin to see community policing. After Rodney King, we see community policing. After Amadou Diallo in New York, we, we see, oh, we're, don't worry, we're going to do community policing. And when you ask police to explain how it's different from regular policing, you don't get a clear answer. Well, we talk to the community, but actually who do they talk to? It's not really a cross-section of the community. It's the people that they want to be in dialogue with. There's a lot of research that shows what community policing means is they talk to landlords and business owners and a few religious leaders. They're not talking to young people. They're not talking to homeless people. They're not talking to recent immigrants. They're not talking to people who have had problems with law enforcement, you know, it's a very narrow sense of who legitimately represents the community. But the bigger problem really is that the fundamental concept of, of community policing is that the community brings its public safety problems to the police to come up with solutions to those problems. But what tools do police have to solve our community problems? They've got guns, and handcuffs and ticket books. They don't have access to affordable housing. They don't have access to youth jobs. They don't have access to mental health services. They don't have access to high quality medical drug treatment, right? So by saying that we're gonna just fix policing by further embedding it as the only solution to community problems, you're actually making the situation worse in my opinion. You're in the same position because, again, you're you're. Well, there might be better interaction between the community and the police. You're still relying on the police to provide the solutions. And we don't even see better interactions, right? What we see is the police have meetings with people who they already are sympathetic to, and they take some nice photos, right? But the, but when you actually go out and talk to people in the community they don't experience policing particularly differently after community policing has been implemented. And certainly the number of arrests and use of force incidents don't typically change. And another thing that often comes up is uh, comments about the how the police force, the racial and ethnic composition of the police force does not reflect the community. You're right that it, uh, overall it, it often does. Um, and, 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 and it, and it doesn't do much to, to quell use of force complaints. You're right. There's now a large body of evidence measuring whether the race 
of individual officers affects their use of force. Most studies show no effect. More distressingly, a few indicate that black officers are more likely to use force or make arrests, especially black civilians. So what what role does the composition of a force have to do with how a department acts? Well, it turns out not a whole lot. I mean, we have to remember police are a tool of government and they get their marching orders from the the political leaders of a city. And so if the message is sent, get rid of those kids on the corner, the police, the race of the police officer just doesn't matter. Now, there's a little bit of research that shows that female officers will try to clear that corner less violently than male officers will. And recently, long after the book came out, there's a couple of studies that show some improvement in some measures by having more black and Latino police officers. And and that's possible at the at the margins of this that you could have some improvement. But it doesn't do anything to change this fundamental problem that we're using police to paper over social problems without giving them any tools to really do that, without really addressing those issues. And that leads to a lot of unnecessary criminalization. And even if a low-level drug arrest is done lawfully and respectfully and according to procedure, it's still going to ruin some young person's life for no good reason. You know, there's no justice in that arrest, regardless of how it's carried out. Uh, and what about the the role of police unions? They are very political power, politically powerful players uh, in, here in San Francisco and Oakland and, and, and such, uh, and across the country nationally. Uh, we have even uh, the, the Vice President Biden is in, touts his endorsement by uh, major police unions and such. What needs to change with the role about the role of police unions um, in terms of the, their interaction with, with politics and politicians? It's, it's definitely important to take some steps to neutralize their political power. And I think the way to do that is to go after you know, the, the campaign contributions and endorsements that they hand out and to make those politically toxic for elected officials. And that's really been happening this last month. All across the country, politicians are rejecting those endorsements, going back through their campaign contributions, pulling that money out and giving it away to, to bail funds and mutual aid projects of various kinds. But I think it's important to keep in mind that The police union doesn't just represent the interests of officers. It's also a kind of institutional home for a whole set of very conservative political interests that look to the police to be their kind of political champions. And so we have to deal with, you know, the the politics of a kind of thin thin blue line mindset that is shared by a lot of residents. And finally, we also have to take seriously the role of elite economic interests in this, who who give money to police foundations, who encourage politicians to go along with these sweetheart contracts with police to hire more police, you know, those downtown folks who feel that they benefit from heavy-handed policing, kind of keeping a lid on things. I want to run 
by a, uh, some things, uh, some some steps towards reform that uh, some cities around here are doing. And wanted to get your take on whether they're on the right path to changing policing. Uh, here in San Francisco, uh, Marilyn and Breed, who, is, as you probably know, uh, grew up in the in, in housing project. She is her family has. Uh, had, uh, had many uh, interactions with the police, um, uh, positive and, and uh, negative, and, and some positive that we've written about in the Chronicle. Um, and she is committed to redirecting money from uh, the police department to the African African American community. She would remove sworn officers from such calls for non criminal activities, replacing them with trained and unarmed professionals. My colleagues uh, at the Chronicle have reported that. You know, last year, roughly 45% of police use of force incidents in San Francisco involved African-Americans, even though black folks make up just 5% of the city's population. Now, she's outlined a roadmap for what she wants to do, but there's uh, she's kind of leaving it up to the police commission uh, and other in the city department to figure out, you know, the specifics of it uh, and the funding uh, levels and such. I, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but is she on the right track? Well, I, I have been following it, and I have uh, spoken to a member of the police commission uh, in San Francisco, and uh, I mean, this is promising. It's it's similar to some of what's being talked about in Minneapolis. I mean, what we need is a, a situation where we have real consultations with local communities about the public safety challenges that they face. And to work with them to try to develop non-police strategies for addressing those things. You know, we have to take seriously these public safety challenges and not just wish them away. But we also have to take seriously that, that there are alternatives out there that we can look to. And we, I think a lot of cities right now are ready to start experimenting with some of the easy stuff to try to get police out of the mental health business, get them out of schools, get them out of the homeless outreach business. But then we need to take a, a deeper look about their role in sex work, in the war on drugs, even dealing with things like youth violence and domestic violence. We, we have some ideas about how to address those things at the community level in a way that's more prevention-oriented and is less punitive. And, and this movement that we've seen the last month or so is is starting to create some political space to to really have those conversations. Well, what's a way that the the police could change the way they uh involved in uh sex work uh and um the the war on drugs. You you have a couple chapters on that in your book. What what would they what would you like to see done differently? What are the alternatives? I think we need to to look at decriminalizing sex work across the board. We've tried to use criminalization to outlaw sex work as part of a kind of moral crusade, if you will, to, to, to quote, signal that we think it's wrong. But sex work is work for real people for, who, who are dealing with a lot of challenging options in their lives. And by criminalizing sex work, whether it's at the supply side or the demand side, we drive it into a black market underworld that makes their lives more difficult and more dangerous. So instead, we need to bring it out of the black market, treat it like another business where workers can have more protection and can self-organize if possible 
And also we need to improve wages for women. We need more supports for homeless youth and runaways and, and kick out kids. On the drugs front, we also need to get rid of prohibition. It doesn't work. It's not capable of working. The black market is the source of so many of the problems. We need to look at legalization schemes, medical distribution of opioids, etc. These things will improve public health outcomes, lure people more, more into treatment options. Portugal has done this across the board. Civilization has not collapsed. The and outcomes you're, and you're look talking very about good. Legalization beyond uh, cannabis, correct? You're talking about that's about right. cocaine, about everything. And everything. That's right. Everything. Everybody in American society has access to any kind of drugs they want right now. I speak in high schools and colleges all across the country. Every kid in those classrooms knows how to get illegal drugs. So this idea that we're preventing people from getting drugs by making it illegal is nonsense. Talk to any police officer, they will tell you the same thing. No amount of drug arrests has prevented anyone from getting drugs. It's a moral crusade that has done nothing to improve public health or public safety. We need to treat it as a medical problem and a social problem and deal with it appropriately. And one, one more thing about, uh, I want to talk to you about Oakland. Uh, City Council just passed a budget that cut $14 million, um, out of its police force. Some council members wanted a $25 million cut. And the goal uh, overall of the reformers is to cut $150 million, uh, which is about half of the department's uh, $300 million budget. Um, is that doable, and how long should that take? I mean, the, this the, the the thing about this reform, this this push for reform, and and sort of awakening to police reform over the last uh, several weeks has come, you know, <laughs> during budget season. And, and some people in the council said, "Well, hey, I'm 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 uh, sympathetic to you, but we can't pull this out and, and pull, do this in ten days and figure out how to totally reform policing. How long should it take? Uh, what are the expectations?" on how long it could take to reform a department. Are we talking a year, two years, five years? What's the timeline? Well, you know, we don't know the answer to that. We know it's not tomorrow. We know it's not going to get solved in this budget cycle. We know that it takes time to put in place these alternative infrastructures to ramp up community-based anti-violence movements, to ramp up the availability of mental health outreach workers, to, to increase the number of, of counselors in schools. All of this is going to take some time, and it's going to take time to create the political will for this. And, and the people who've been doing this work on the ground, not, not people who've just shown up with a sign for the first time, but the people who are <laughs> actually organizing in communities in places like Oakland, where this organizing has been going on for a long time, they are working in communities to address specific community needs. And they, they're doing that hard work of talking to their neighbors about what these alternatives might look like and building the political will to demand these non-police strategies. So I think we're, you know, there's talk about, you know, uh, maybe what we need is a five-year campaign to cut local police spending by 50%. Hmm. 
that gives us time to lay out these alternatives, begin that process of, of, of implementing things, of increasing capacity, and dialing back our reliance on policing. And what does it look like in the suburbs where, uh, it, where there's certainly the crime rates are lower, but, um, uh, the, but the, the, some of the same uh, structural issues exist. How does uh, reforming the police, how does the end of policing look in the suburbs? Well, again, every community has slightly different public safety needs. But suburbs have their problems, too. This is a place where the opioid crisis has run rampant. This is a place that has domestic violence problems, mental health problems sometimes that the police have to get involved in. And the suburbs are not as homogenous as we sometimes think they are. There are pockets of homelessness, disorder, crime, etc. So, but let's just take the opioid crisis, which has been a major com- concern for many suburban communities. I mean, these communities have made it pretty clear that they don't think the solution is more policing. They certainly don't think that that's how they want their children helped, right? They 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 want real medical interventions for their kids. And why can't we do that for all communities? And I I think that that the suburbs could also be part of building a political consensus about ending the war on drugs and ramping up our public health capacity. So we're, as we alluded to, we're at a major inflection point right now. We've never seen um, uh, the the power of a multiracial effort to reform policing uh, as we are right now. Um, Are you concerned about the staying power of this, what makes you think this is going to last and what should the next steps be? Well, of course, this is always an open question. It's anybody who thinks they know what the future of the social movement is, you know, is, is, uh, is kind of fooling themselves. I think it's important though, to see what's happening now as a continuation of a set of events that date back to Trayvon Martin's killing, to the killing of Mike Brown and Ferguson and Eric Garner in New York that this has been rolling out over several years. The analysis of the movement has gotten deeper. The breadth of organizing has been increasing. And and I also think it's important to say that this is not a movement that's just about policing and public safety. It's it's a racial justice movement. Mm -hmm. Just like when we look back at at the uprisings of the 1960s, riots and whatnot, while they may have been triggered by policing, that we don't think of those today as just police reform movements. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a deepening of the conversation about what we need to do to to address, you know, re- long overlooked problems of racial inequality in the United States. Alex Vitale, the book is called The End of Policing. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for being on It's All Political. You're most welcome, Joe. I really enjoyed it. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Alex for joining us today and talking about his book, The End of Policing. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. Our great theme music is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crowsong. And remember, no matter what you think defund the police means, it's all political. <laughs>